Welcome to the Peaceful Embodiment Podcast. I'm Jean Byrne. And I'm Chandrika Gibson. The Peaceful Embodiment Podcast is brought to you by Wisdom Yoga Institute. We are researchers and practitioners in the field of yoga and well-being, and we're going to be having conversations on this podcast together and with interview guests around the intersection of mindfulness, yoga, and living well. Thank you for joining us on the Peaceful Embodiment Journey. Welcome to another episode of Peaceful Embodiment Podcast. I'm Chandrika Gibson from Wisdom Yoga Institute, and today I'm going to be talking with Pip Brennan. So let me tell you a little bit about Pip's background. She lives in Perth, Western Australia, where she was born in the mid-60s. She lived in Europe throughout the 90s, in London and also in Greece, which forms a beautiful part of the backdrop to her book, Not My Story. Pip's life in Perth and Europe was pleasant and interesting until 2002, when at the age of 36, Pip survived a home invasion and sexual assault. This happened two years after her return to Perth, and she had a young child at the time too. So she published her story, her book, Not My Story, in 2014, and the book is a phenomenal read, Pip. It's really a great way to understand your lived experience and to get insight into the trauma and the healing that you experienced. So the book follows Pip's journey of healing and recovery from the trauma of assault. And because of her brilliant mind, her intelligence, and her work as a leader in the not-for-profit world, Pip has a really great perspective that she shares and talks about the ongoing need to address victims of crime's needs through advocacy and support for victims right throughout the recovery journey. Her book is also a plea for us all to have a more mature discussion about our responsibilities for community safety and what restorative justice could look like. So by day, Pip is a not-for-profit executive director, and in the mornings, evenings and weekends, she is a writer. Her blog is a great read, as is her book, and she's working on a novel as well. So at this point, I should make a um, trigger warning that we will be talking in more depth about the sexual assault that Pip experienced. We do hope to give you a perspective that is hopeful and healing. However, if you're on your own or if this is a time of tenderness for you, maybe this isn't the right time to listen to this particular episode. So make wise choices, lean on your inner and outer resources. But if you're in for the journey, we hope you enjoy the ride together today. So Pip Brennan, tell Hello, us a bit Chandrika. more about you. <laughs> Hi, Chandrika. So I was, it's interesting when you listen back, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, my childhood, really. So, so I was um, born in Perth, born in um, St. John of God in Subiaco, not far from here. And I lived in the same house, um, which is still there. So <laughs> my mother's now in her mid-90s and still in the house. And my father died there just last year after more than 63 years. I think, I guess for me, what, what I understand now, which I didn't understand then, is that that's just an incredible privilege to have that kind of um, stability, love and longevity. And whilst um, as a young person, I have to say Perth in the 70s was a little bit dull um, and I couldn't wait to sort of go to Europe, you know, it's... It, it, 
you know, it's been, you know, such a wonderful start for me in so many different ways. Yeah, and that really comes through in your book as well, that that you did have, I think you've referred to it as a backpack full of privilege, that, you know, you had a lot of resilience, you had maybe a sense of being peacefully embodied and being what I think a lot of us have as young adults, a little bit immortal, like a little bit immune to the suffering of life because, yeah, this is a fairly safe town and it is a fairly comfortable upbringing that you're coming from. And so then you have this confidence to go and explore the world and take some risks. But actually it's when you come home to Perth that that sense of safety is ruptured, right? That's a really interesting reflection and I think, you know, I, I really think about what Stan Grant said about, you know, the, the two Australias, you know, the Australia that I experienced, the Perth that I experienced in the 70s and um, the Perth that the Aboriginal people would have experienced in the 70s wouldn't have been the same world and I was, um, I'd say more oblivious, I was quite oblivious. I guess, I guess, you know, just in terms of, you know, unpacking privilege a bit, I think that, I think having a um, stable, loving relationship with my mother is a huge one and I know that that's not necessarily related to class but that's that's something that I consider to be really important and I think you know obviously having an education and um you know being you know the white Australian there's so many things in that that really um set you up and and you know I definitely would call myself largely oblivious I do remember when I very first arrived in London so I was 25 because I wanted to actually have a professional career in Europe, not a, you know, work in a bar. So I actually did actually get a degree and get some professional experience before I moved. And I remember, you know, I was told by my Australian friends, because there's always Australian friends in London, let's face it. And they said, you know, take your pound, go down to Abbey National and get yourself a bank account and then you can you can get your, your salary put in for when you do your temp work. So that's what I did. But um, that was really straightforward. Took my pound, got my Abbey National and I was kind of on the way out and to... Um, backpackers from Africa, men of colour, tried to do the same thing and blow me down, they couldn't. And I just remember thinking, mm, that doesn't make sense. We've both got the fumes of Heathrow on us. We'd be kind of identical. So that was one of those moments. There have been others. I remember once posting on Facebook about, you know, my experiences of positive discrimination and and um, I think it was one of one of my Aboriginal friends said, what's that like? Yeah. And that's the thing. We we only know the world initially from within our own skin, don't we? And then as we mature, I think we start to develop this ability to really be empathetic and put ourselves in the shoes of others. But perhaps we can never fully know what it is to live with without these privileges. And the world that we're in now where we're talking about this, I think is so helpful to see different perspectives and to start to reflect on how easy some of the paths that we've travelled have been. Having said that, though, everybody's got their suffering. And for you, I guess, in this, this book, you're exploring that suffering in a very direct way, something that, that many women have experienced and that is a real trauma, a real sense of your life possibly being threatened and that sense of being safe in the world being shattered. Can we talk about the title of the book, Not My Story? I think that you've got a quote there from Eckhart Tolle about it. Can you explain the title to us? Yes, so I I was and am very taken with a lot of the work that Eckhart Tolle's done. And it's around that, you know, you are not your body, you are not your story. So it's that sense that, um, you know, we are here to learn and we do have a body 
here and you know, we have lessons to learn but but that's that's not where it stops there's also obviously really important referencing for me around um i'm not a victim i'm a survivor there's there's both of those sorts of things going on i think um you know since that book was written we've had the me too movement and, and much more recently we've had all the um you know the the canberra bubble and all the stuff around how toxic um our political culture is you know I, th I think you know since i wrote the book i mean even even in 2014 when that book was written but perhaps more so now i think we are really trying to say rape is about the rapist not about the victim so really it's like the sh where does the shame belong it doesn't belong with the victim but it always has traditionally belonged with the victim Yes, and that's something that I think a lot of us can really identify with is the sort of silencing of these things. And wherever you kind of feel that your personal trauma is along the continuum of, you know, small T to major big T traumas or, you know, complex trauma, wherever you feel that your experience sits doesn't really matter. What What is really true, I think, for everyone, a uniting theme is the sense of shame being on the, the victim, for want of a better word, on the person who's experienced it, who feels like it's not safe to speak up because the systems are re-traumatising and, and you talk a lot about that in the book. But I did want to just read a little paragraph from the book, if I may, because this really sums up one, one part of the experience of sexual assault trauma. You've said here... It is a very common phenomenon in rape cases for the victim to experience this tonic immobility and then either blame themselves or be blamed by others for their lack of resistance. What a misunderstanding of the human system this is. There is no scope for logical processes along the lines of, I really must fight this person or else I'm going to look pretty dumb on the witness stand. The limbic brain makes all the decisions and logical reasoning doesn't come into it. I think that's that's so pertinent, so apt. Would you mind going into a little bit more about what that experience was like for you, Pip? Well, I think, you know, certainly for me, um, I am somebody who's really into research and so that was a big part of my own recovery was was going to understand a little bit more how this how this all works. So we always everyone knows about the fight or flight response. That's really common. But the fight, flight or freeze, we've forgotten about the freeze. So freezing is a is a perfectly it's a really good it's a really good way to survive. That's why we do it. Mm. Um, and and I think for whatever reason uh, this has not filtered through to, say, for example, our legal system where, you know, I mean, I made the thing about I'm going to look a bit dumb on the witness stand. I think we need to talk a bit about, a bit more about the witness stand. Um, you know, certainly a book I've read since, um, you know, the, the Canberra Bubble stuff has really re-energised all my thinking in the book around the witness stand. But, you know, this getting back to this, you know, what, what happened for me um, was when I was uh, when I saw the intruder in the house, that moment of going, oh, OK, so not just a cat. This is actually there is an intruder in the house and and it's over like this sense of, you know, almost like the goodness in the world just crashing down. It's like it doesn't matter how many volunteer hours you've done or what you're a good person you feel you are. Life is chaotic and here's your chaos. It's right here. So in that moment, I had so many resources. My, I've, I've never actually had a moment of, of greater mental clarity than then. It was almost like, a, um, almost like an enlightenment episode 
in a way. Um, so so I didn't I didn't I tried I tried the flight and that didn't work. Um, I tried, you know. Well, I didn't really try the flight. I tried the flight, and then I just did the. I wouldn't have called it freezing, but but I would call submitting. So all of those, they were all calculated decisions, all calculated like that direct limbic thing. There was no frontal cortex doing any, you know, second guessing. It was just all one hundred percent. There was all this, and it was almost like there was um, a whole lot of information coming to me, perhaps almost psychically. Who knows that that was able to? All of it was right. All of all of that I thought it all. I just had so many resources. But again, how, how does that happen? Well, that happens when you have a really great childhood with not a lot of trauma and so many adult experiences of, of you know, working in the world well and things, you know, happening in the way you'd like them to happen. So, so I had all of those, had all of those things. So in that moment, all those resources didn't desert me. I, I was really, when I, when I read into it, you know, and I, I had forgotten about freeze, so I guess that's why I put it in the book, the flight, fright, uh, fright, flight or freeze thing. Mm. And really and truly, you know, we, we all understand those rape myths. And as I mentioned, you know, I, I've been reading a book called Witness by the, the journalist Louise Milligan, who, who was behind the Canberra bubble and the Pell, um, Cardinal Pell um, accusations, you know, of him himself being a, a, a predator. Uh, so... I never actually had to go on the witness stand, but the, the subtitle, the sub, that book is called Witness, and it's called The Brutal Cost of Seeking Justice, oh. and it's and it's a brutal cost, and and a lot of those myths are, are baked into our legal system. Yes, and it seems like you know you're right that that the legal system and society at large don't fully understand that freeze is a totally appropriate stress response, a totally appropriate survival response. And I've seen more recently, you know, more Fs added to that stress response, including flop and fawn. And sometimes the safest thing you can do is actually placate the predator. And then it can be really difficult to state your case and say, well, no, I didn't try to gouge his eyes out with my fingernails. Instead, I tried to calm him down and hope that that might make me safer in that situation. So you said you didn't go to, you weren't on the witness stand, but you did have some experiences then with trying to get support after the event, didn't you? Yes, and and it was, for me, it was a really interesting journey in that, um, you know, as, as a victim of crime, obviously you're just unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time. But what happens when you, and nobody really thinks this through as a citizen, you know, what happens when you make a report is you start a process and that process does not have your best interests at heart. That process is there to ensure our rule of law is enacted. And our rule of law is an important thing. It does stop us throwing people in prison for no reason. It's really, really important. But it's a big machine. It's a really big machine. So, of course, you've got a range of different things. So, so on the morning, you know, there was two two government services that were, you know, um, triggered to work with me. Obviously the police were the first one, but also the health system. But how that how that played out was that the requirements of evidence collection trumped absolutely everything else. That was the most important thing. So not my needs as a victim, mm-hmm. not my need to have a shower, not my need to, to, you know, perhaps have a, you know, have the forensic first and then do the, then do the um, statement. 
it was done the other way around. One of the reasons it was done the other way around, I realised only with the benefit of hindsight, is that when the police are likely to take someone straight to the Sexual Assault Resource Centre, over time they might change their mind about reporting because they understand the brutal cost of seeking justice at that agency. Right. So I'm I'm just reading between the lines and guessing that that involves then some intrusive medical procedures. Like, is that re-traumatising then to well, have the forensics done on your body? I, I would have to say that the health people were absolutely amazing. And, and again, you know, remembering that I don't have any other traumas of that nature, so I don't have any other triggers, the whole process was... It, it was so respectful and, and there was consent for everything all the time. And I'm like, yeah, guys, I've already said yes, you know. <laughs> you know, every single thing you've got to ask consent for. But, of course, you know, that they do they do, do an amazing job. They really do. Like they had the social worker sat at my head and talked to me and the doctor was at the other end doing the business. It was very, it was very, very respectful. Um, and I'm sure that when you have a situation with somebody who's, who's you know, does have other traumas, they would manage that really well. Yeah. That's the sort of thing. We often manage things quite well at that point. But what, what about the bits in between? So what about when you go from getting the medical stuff to needing the counselling support? What, what I experienced was, was a, a little bit of a rupture and I didn't see anyone at all for two weeks. I mean, that's not really what our society would expect, that it would take two weeks after a home invasion to see anyone to start to do a debrief. It was just a kind of a bit of an administrative mix-up because the people that were there on the day didn't really know the counselling services very well and they sort of said, oh, would you like to do a group or would you like to do individual counselling? And you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe a group. But, of course, they only run groups really rarely. Imagine that. It's quite hard to fill a group. Yes, and maybe that's back to the silencing and the shame the too. And perhaps the shame. people don't choose and the work, to perhaps. open up there. Yeah, and the work. You've got, it's got to be the right time to do the work and the right, you know, and it's not the only way to do the work, of course. Yeah, and I'm curious about that, Pip. Was there, in that time after the assault, was there a sense of, of losing your peaceful embodiment? Was there a, a desire to get numb or to avoid? Was any of that there for you? The peaceful embodiment was gone in an instant and it had to be reclaimed. Yeah. How did you reclaim it? I reclaimed it through my body. Yeah, because, you know, we say that the um, circumstances, you know, you, you hold circumstances in your cells. It's, it's absolutely, I 100% believe that. I've been doing a lot of, you know, reading around um, trauma, as mentioned, and, and I came across, you know, some really important books around, you know, the body remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really I felt it was super important to, to work with the body and that, you know, so I found that probably better than talk-based therapy. The group therapy that I finally accessed about nine months in was really transformative, definitely. Um, but I was, most people were dealing with stuff at least a decade ago. Nobody was dealing with something that was so recent. Right. Why do you think that is? I think I think now we all understand that it's pretty normal to have quite a long gap between something happening and wanting to deal with it. I guess one of my great hopes is as we start to put the shame on the right person, the perpetrator as opposed to the victim, that that time will decrease because what happens with your feelings, um, people think if I forget about it, it will go away. It doesn't go away. It, it, it increases in intensity and it starts to pop up in a thousand different ways. There is absolutely, I, I, I 
really believe that humans are wired to heal. We absolutely are wired to heal. We'll take the little, littlest thread of help to heal. So, so I absolutely think it's important to, to um, you know, see hope. You know what what people what humans can can heal from is is amazing, but you can't start unless you start. Mm. And you, maybe you can't rush that process either. Like healing happens in its own time frame, and it's not an instantaneous shift from suffering to hope. That can be a longer journey for people. And perhaps again, this speaks to what your history is before these events happen in your life. And, and maybe a single event also is a different matter than more complex trauma where there's repeated assault and within relationships and it's, you know, it can be a different journey for everyone who experiences these kinds of assaults. You had written a blog about your yoga experiences and I think that you had done quite a bit of yoga prior to this experience. Can you talk about the role that yoga has played in your life? Absolutely. So I first discovered yoga um, at about 30. I was living in London and an Iyengar studio was being opened up. I lived in New Cross. Um, probably nobody's ever heard of New Cross. It's near Deptford. Anyway, it's not, on, it's not on the tube map, so nobody's ever heard of it. But um, it's right near Greenwich where I used to work. And this wonderful woman, um, Glennis, Glennis Shepherd was running it. And it was, um, I had literally done no exercise, no body work. I was very, very much in my head. And that's where I learned. So with her, I spent a couple of years with her and I really understood the poses. So, so I, you know, you have enough time with the right teacher to do the adjustments and you, you get to feel in your body how it needs to feel so I guess for me I had that I had that um that learning which I took with me when I left London and moved to Greece that was a really difficult transition I, I went from working in the museum sector becoming a teacher I did a four-week teacher training course and how to teach adults and then next minute I was teaching 15 year old Greek kids with zero classroom control skills so yeah <laughs> I needed a lot of yoga but you know so so I took it with me there it was it was super important in my um, birthing journey I really wanted to have a go at having a non-medicalized delivery and that yoga I, I did my yoga every day and then I would do birth poses at the end so when it came to the labor they were really natural and they were super helpful and I did have an incredible birth I must say around about the time of the assault you know with when you have a have a new child you know it's harder to build in the self-care so my practice wasn't as regular by then but the thing is it was all there and I had it Mm. you know had it within me so yoga there was there was a number of tools but yoga was one of those ones you can do yourself but I you know sought massage and water-based massage and craniosacral and reiki and acupuncture you name it I tried it all and I think it all helped and um I think it's 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 obviously not just the yoga asana is not just the the postures but it's it is that like you asked me about the quote you know you are not your body you're not your story it, it is that part of that spiritual framework for me I guess Mm. that it's it's all about you're here to learn you know and you can learn through the body but it's not where it ends mm. yeah and so the suffering that the body can experience and obviously that that you know impacts all the other layers of self but you can heal through the body and that's a really important journey to take and one that you've clearly taken yeah I, I wanted to sort of slip back to your comment earlier too about I mean a single incident trauma I didn't have the language then um but I remember thinking it's a bit like a fairground ride. Like once you've had a near-death experience like that, you do have to get on that. You're going to have to have the flashbacks. 
you're going to have to have, you know, all of that anxiety and all of that early, you know, loss of um, sense of safety in the world. And that then can be healed or it can be concretized into post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So, so we have so much as a society, I believe, to help people, um, you know, heal. I think, though, you made another really important point, and that was, you know, at the age when the trauma happens and how often it happens. So something happening as a 36-year-old well-resourced adult versus something happening to a child, you know, it's different. And I would also make the point again about the human desire, the human, humans being wired for healing, I still think, you know, healing is always possible. I just don't think that our medical system really understands or deals with trauma in any way, shape or form the way it could. Mm, yes. So lots of beautiful points there. I love this idea that, yeah, humans are, are wired for healing. And I think in a kind of yogic framework, we might think about that too, that there is this, this flow of, well, it's in Buddhism as well, this idea of a dharmic kind of cycle, a flow towards your utmost well-being or towards your flourishing that happens naturally if we get out of our own way. But then these traumas, they kind of, they put obstacles in our way, partly because of those survival responses. We have to shut down certain parts of ourselves in order to carry on. And so the healing process that you're describing sounds like being brave and facing that discomfort and unpacking it. One of the things I thought in the book was incredibly courageous, you might have different words for it, but I thought it was courageous, was that you met the perpetrator, didn't you? I did. So um, you mentioned earlier about the, the legal processes. It wasn't, um, it wasn't an immediate guilty plea. It, it, it took some time before he was caught because there was no description and he was actually found through DNA. And then once he was found, even through DNA evidence, he didn't just plead guilty, pleaded not guilty. So it really looked like I was going to have to be a witness. Also, I had to experience the whole Department of Public Prosecutions service, which is so different from police and health. Police and health did tend to be very supportive, remembering, of course, that I am the perfect victim because I don't know the perpetrator, white middle class, university educated, they were they were really wrapped around me. We know that this is not the experience for um, especially people of colour, especially Aboriginal people. But so just to acknowledge that that in my case, with my circumstances, the police and health were really good. Oh. Then you've got the Department of Public Prosecutions who already treat you like crap because they're there to represent the Crown. They are not there to represent you, and you have no one. You have no one. I started to read again, perhaps a bit too much research, but I read a book called um, Surviving the Legal Justice System. And it was a woman who was a victim of childhood sexual assault. She was put on the stand for four days. And she had some really good advice about, you know, about how to manage what you're going to, um, what you're going to experience on the stand. Um, I know I, I met her again a few years later. And and this is this is what I thought I suspected, you know, that, that we've changed a lot. You know, you, you can't, you know, question somebody's sexuality and you can't you can't do all that sort of stuff with witnesses. But it is still happening. So we are still believing the rape myths. We are still that sexism in our society is still perpetrated through that witness process. And and yes, it's really important that we don't put away people who are innocent. But the way it works with sexual assault specifically is that it's very hard to get a conviction. 
Yes, and it seems to really tilt towards victim blaming and asking women still, you know, what you were wearing and why you didn't protect yourself better and getting back to that that paragraph that I read, you know, why you didn't fight back or why you didn't scream louder or, yeah, there seems to be that turning to the victim to say, well, if it was so terrible, how come you didn't do something different? That's exactly right. And I think whilst we have learned more, we have learned more, like we've understood that, okay, it's actually 30 years is the kind of standard time for someone to come forward after a childhood sexual assault. So that means for some people it's going to be 60 years and some people it's going to be five years. I think we have to also remember in those sorts of cases, you, that they, if, if they do get convicted, they'd be lucky to get three years. I want you to think about that, three years. And for all that re-traumatisation and all the work that the the victim or survivor has had to do to get that person... And what they've lost. Mm. They they will, for example, have lost their adult sexuality. Just it's never going to be something they can reclaim. Three years. Anyway, don't get me started about that. But but one of the things I've always, you know, I've had, you know, because I've carried some things from this time whilst in my day-to-day work now, I'm working more in health, I'm not working so much in this space. I did... um, you know, I did t- tend to. I got to that point where you think, mm, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, if I'm having the right influence. I did get, I got chucked off that committee. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, uh, I think um, I've always had this concern about what is going on in the courtrooms. And so this year, when um, Louise Milligan's book, you know, Witness: The Brutal Cost of Seeking Justice, came out, um, I read it, and you know. C- couldn't couldn't stop reading it so so she really starts from her lived experience of being a witness not with herself being a sexual abuse survivor but with herself being an advocate for sexual abuse survivors so she was she was the core part of um, Pell's case to get him out of prison and she talks about the experience so it was I think it was either one or two days on the stand the way you are treated as as a, as you know, as a complaint, or in this case, she was a witness, and and also in sexual assault cases, believe it or not, you're a complainant, but you're also a witness. Like you're a oh. witness, that's what you are. The way people are treated is so bad. There's a whole chapter f- um, about this young boy Paris, and he was only groomed. He didn't, thank God, didn't actually get sexually abused, but he has not recovered from being on the witness stand. He has not recovered from that. That is not okay. And and like it's like I always suspected all the stuff that I thought, you know, yes, we've had new policies and we've had new this, new that, but it's not what's happening in the courtrooms. It's not what's happening. Witnesses are still getting that sort of treatment. So I was really, really, really scared about this. Um, but in the end, at the very last minute, he changed his plea. Oh, he changed it to plea he guilty. He changed his plea he? to mm. guilty, uh, kind of at the last step. So he well and truly missed any opportunity to get a reduced sentence, you know, that, that was, that was um, you know, I think there was, you know, I, I, sh- I know I shouldn't speak for him, but my, my reflections afterwards, it was very hard for him to admit that he'd done it. Mm. Certainly the police said, you know, because he'd been in contact with the justice system from teens um, and had a life of what they described as extreme neglect, poverty, not a great life, you know, a difficult life. Um, They said we just didn't think it was him. That wouldn't have occurred to them who'd been, you know, in his life that he would do something like that. And I think that that may have been part of what it was for him that he, he couldn't bring himself to plead guilty. And, you know, whether he felt like he wanted to um, 
save me from that. You know, that's what was said, and, and perhaps that was the case. And having read this book, Witness, again, I'm just thinking, I was saved, you know, but so many women are not. Oh. And, you know, I had a super strong case because he had broken into my house and we had DNA evidence. It, it, I still would have been mauled on the stand. Yes. So, yeah, very fortunate you didn't do have to do that and stand up and, and state your case. But you did then choose to meet him. Can you explain why you did that and, and what was in sure. that process? I, mean, I only went to the I went to the court once um, and that was, I think, um, I've sort of slightly lost in the midst of time and I was a little bit confused about the legal processes at the time and, and, and certainly with the time that's passed, I'm no clearer, but my understanding was it was it was one of the first appearances where he was pleading or something like that. Anyway, so he was actually physically in the courtroom and at the time I thought if I go and see him, perhaps it will reduce the trigger I've currently got when I go to the shopping centre and I see a silhouette. And I think, you know, I see a tall person with curly hair and I think it could be him because I don't know what he looks like. So I thought perhaps if I go and see what he looks like, it will reduce that trigger. So I did. And um, I, you know, like the the magistrate or judge, I'm not 100% sure about some, you know, so so the legal person was reading out the the details of the case. It was very sad. Like it just was made me feel really sad and I I was crying. Like when I walked, when... He was brought in. There was him and another perpetrator at the same time. So I didn't know who was who because I didn't know what he looked like. And then there was this confusion and one of them was leaving and, and I was a bit, you know, like, oh, you know, what's going on here? But then but the, he looked straight at me. He knew exactly who I was. So I didn't, I, would, I literally would have walked past him in the street. Oh. And, you know, when, you know, when the um, charges were being read, you know, the details of the case were being read out and I was having a cry, he was slumping down in the chair and, and, and you could see that the shame was was very strong and and again this I'm only really I guess going on the instinct on the night that he 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 was what came to him was broken beyond repair and I think that I know that's a bit counter to me saying people are always able to heal but I guess I understood his extreme disadvantage uh-huh. and that he wasn't actually a horrendous human being it wasn't the sort of attack that's very hard to come back from it was almost like he understood the legal system enough just to nudge it over so he'd get a long sentence and this is, again, me putting things together in hindsight. But what happened for me is I had a few different triggers and they went one by one. So, you know, I mentioned one about, you know, seeing the shadow of, of a person. The other one was extreme sadness that my daughter was there yeah. and the, the impact on her. And, you know, bit by bit, you know, with some really good help actually from a school psych, that really helped me to just go, yep, it will have affected her. Lots of things will have affected her, but she'll be fine sort of thing, you know. Um, and then once you get over the fact that, yes, she has been affected, you just have to suck it up, sister. It's part of her life. It's not like she's had ongoing neglect and abuse. It's, again, it's a single incident and you'll be fine sort of thing. So there was that. But one of the things that I actually found really sad was um, sending someone to prison for six years. So of course, he gets he gets a six or seven years because it's breaking into someone's house. Oh. And this is what I also found so puzzling, you know, like the impact on me is nothing like nothing like what it would be for someone who had childhood sexual assault from a father or another trusted person. Mm-hmm. But we've got this really strange... Anyway, don't get me started with sentencing. We could be here all day. But, you know, <laughs> I guess for me there was there was a real catch of sadness about... Because I don't like prisons. I don't like us saying, well, you don't count anymore and you're out. Mm. 
We, oh. most people go to prison, will come out. That's the reality. What are we doing to make sure that re-entry is going to mean that there are less victims? Almost nothing. I mean, I'm not trying to... I know there are agencies that are trying, but mostly we do absolutely nothing. And in that, that one day that I actually was in the court and he was in the courtroom, he and I were completely irrelevant. We were utterly irrelevant. The victim and the perpetrator, utterly irrelevant. It's just a conversation between lawyers and a judge. Oh. But there's something massive that's happened. And I guess um, I really felt that I wanted to, at some point, undertake the victim offender mediation process. As soon as, as soon as he was identified, as mentioned, it took 14 months before he was even caught, I did actually reach out to the victim offender mediation unit because we actually do have a government agency that, that is just designed for this to help victims and perpetrators come together in a structured conversation in a safe space to talk things through. Right, so you did do that. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't do it straight away. I, I inquired about it and they kept my file all that time and it took six years before. It just wasn't going away. It just was not going away. I could not listen to Paul Kelly's Making Gravy. I just couldn't listen to the song. <laughs> Why <laughs> Without that song? crying yeah. because it's, you know, about somebody in prison. Mm, uh-huh. And it's that sense of you don't count, you don't belong in our society and you never will. And for, that's just something that's never sat very easily with me. So anyway, I did finally go and I did do it. And after all that delay and everything like that, it was almost, I wouldn't say anticlimactic because it wasn't really important. It was a really important event. And I know he showed a lot of courage by actually turning up because, you know, it was down at Bunbury Prison at the time. That's where he was at the time. And they can say no right up to the end, you know. And I thought, well, I could drive all the way down to Bunbury and he might not. That's okay. So I just thought, you know, just got to go with what is and and. And it was actually, it was a good, it was a good experience. And he just said, I need, that's the first thing he said, I needed a really long sentence. <laughs> I needed a long sentence because he was having so much difficulty with drugs and he was worried about, you know, dying. So he wanted to live. We want to live. Oh gosh, it's so it's so tricky, isn't it? There's there's so many layers to this, and what I see in your face and what I feel coming through, and I think our listeners will feel it too, is how much compassion you had for him, and yet you know often we we feel like it should be the other way around. You were the victim, and he was the perpetrator. But what what you're showing us is across the lifespan. You've had lots of good things that gave you resilience and the ability to recover and to heal yourself from that trauma. And perhaps he didn't have as many of those resources or clearly he didn't. And so you've kind of gone to how can we make the system better so that people, all people heal, which I find, you know, a remarkably benevolent worldview. It's a beautiful thing. Is that how you would... Is there an ideal that you would see for restorative justice? How could it be ideal? There is a term called therapeutic jurisprudence and it's about as opposite as what we're currently doing in our justice system. So whilst we are mangling up um, victims, we are also mangling up perpetrators. Perpetrators do often sit in prison feeling like victims and you can kind of get it. You can kind of get why they feel that way. And, And, you know, obviously... I think that um, alternatives, to, um, um, is it called alternatives to justice? That whole movement where, you know, instead of sending someone to jail, you, you do other things, you know, and, and, you know, again, it's that prevention space. Um, 
there's some really great work that's starting to happen in that space. I guess I feel I feel that that's a really important thing. We put so many of our resources right up to the end when it's all too late. So I know I know in in this person's case, you know, I think about well, who was there when he was three, four, five, and he would have needed support that's not there. Um, and you know, we can see like on the front page of today's paper, terribly sad story of a young boy. 15-year-old who just lost hope, an Aboriginal boy who just is like, no, you know, tapping out. He's, you know, he's had so many different traumas and and you just think, I can't see anywhere in our out-of-home care system where we're actually looking at this. I read this really incredible memoir. I think, you know, if if people, you know, are interested, I think it's such a great book. It's called um, The Prettiest Horse in the Glue Factory and it's by a... um, young comedian called Corey White and you know he had the most horrendous experiences in his childhood but I think he was around about 25 before he ever heard of complex post-traumatic stress disorder nobody anywhere in any of those placements in out-of-home care in any of those drug and alcohol counseling services in any of those prison in any of those you know psych interventions nobody talked about trauma and why he was behaving the way he was the way he was behaving, and in fact, a lot of his stuff was like being a really good student, but like a just to the to the detriment of his health type of student. But that was his way out. Mm-hmm. Nobody told him he he could have had the keys in his hand from you know from very young age. You know, when trauma happens, these are some of the ways it shows up, and these are some of the ways out. Why yeah. are we Why are we doing this? Yeah. Why are we doing this? I don't understand it. I agree. I feel like even the language of trauma and being trauma sensitive, being trauma informed and the healing processes that can happen, I feel like that is something that can be both personally profound and systemically healing. If all of our systems and organisations were to be trauma informed, that would change the outcomes for lots of people. And and maybe that does change that sort of binary between victim and perpetrator and help us understand the society that we live in and I'm going to circle it back to this idea of peaceful embodiment Absolutely. that everybody should be able to feel peacefully embodied and in that sense of being at home in themselves cause a lot less harm to others as they move through their lives. Yeah that's really interesting so I know for me last year because I work at the Health Consumers Council now and um, have done for about the last seven years and one of the projects we've worked on is around healthy weight and through that project that's where I learned about the adverse childhood experience um, or ACEs um, process and so that's as simple as here's a chart with with nine different things that can happen to you Um, how many of those have you got it's that's it that's it so for example it includes things like um, sexual abuse it it includes neglect it includes um, you know death of a parent um, parent in jail what, what I don't think it includes and needs to include, though, is um, people who experience discrimination and racism because I think that needs to be there. And also um, impacts of colonisation are not the same but, but, but are, you know, aligned. So anyway, that, that's, that's almost like a blood pressure score. If you've got five, four, four, four or five or more, then, then you are looking at things like mental health, drug and alcohol, obesity, so forth and so forth and so forth. So so imagine if we started to think in that way, you know, one of the practitioners who really uses that tool in our state, what she finds is she's opening up conversations for the first time for people. So they think, okay, somebody 
who's in a position of, I don't know, authority as a, as a, as a medical person or a clinical person is happy to talk about this stuff. Mm. And it kind of, it opens up this whole other different way of thinking. One of her patients said to her, well, the doctor told me, uh, sorry, the judge told me I should get the children counselling, but I didn't really understand why. Now I understand why. So, so imagine if, if you understand as a victim, if you understand as a service provider, this is, this is some of the stuff that will help, you know. Some of it's even just listening and naming it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I mean by the language. I think having the language be part of the more general conversation in the media and in social media and between people is so helpful to give us all frameworks to understand what we've been through and how we can come home to ourselves that's right and we talked a bit before about you know that tonic immobility stuff Mm. you know there is there is that lack of understanding about how trauma works so it can look weird why people do stuff but then when you understand it you've got the key you go okay tonic immobility yep i get it you know people still having contact with with people that have abused them now i understand because Mm. it can look you know, from, from a privileged and non-traumatised background, it can just look weird. You don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, wow, we've gone through some really some really deep things and some beautiful ideas have been brought forth. Pip, one of the questions that we always ask our podcast guests is where we'll try to finish up today. How would you define peaceful embodiment? I think that really important thing about being at home in yourself. So there is that, um, I love that sort of saying with, with in yoga, like your body is always in present time. Your mind can be off in all sorts of other things, but your body is always in present time. And I think, um, I guess for me, peaceful embodiment is, is that absolute alignment between what it is you're here to do and what you're doing. Mm. Wow, beautiful. Thank you so much, Pip, for joining me today. It's been a great conversation and I highly recommend listeners that you do check out Pip's writing on her website and in her book and the forthcoming book as well I think will be really exciting. I think the forthcoming book's going to be kind of a long way away, it feels like <laughs> at the moment, but, um, yeah, certainly some other writing projects are starting to... Um, Yes, starting to come up. The, the novel project, I, I will have to tell your listeners, they will not be getting that anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit like the PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Timeline yeah. keeps expanding. Indeed. But you are a wonderful voice in the space of health and healing and well-being, and I really appreciate your time here today. Thanks so much, Pip. Thank you, Chandrika. Thanks so much for joining us on the Peaceful Embodiment podcast today. If anything that has been discussed in this episode has raised concerns for you or equally has inspired you and sparked ideas that you would like to get in touch with us about, you can reach out to us through our various social media platforms. We would love you to subscribe to this channel, leave a review and feel free to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. Be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Wisdom Yoga Institute.